Thanks for joining us here on a brand new episode of League of Legends. Alongside me, Adam Carruthers. It's a show where I get to sit down and talk to our guests that fly here to Malaysia to analyse the weekend Premier League games. This is more off the cuff, more conversational, and for me, a lot of fun. And I hope for you, very informative as well. So we welcome, and he's literally been in the country less than 24 hours, Martin Raymond Keown, am I right? Is the middle name That's correct? That's correct. Okay, I've done a little bit of research here and there on you. I want to go back to the early days. What was life like for young Martin Keown? Was it all about sports? Were you an academic? What were you like? I think I was a bit of a nightmare kid, Ooh. to be fair, full of energy. Um, always out and about from a really young age, out on my bike, um, playing football from a very, very young age. And um, my mum and dad were kind of at the, they were almost going out of their mind with what to do with me. And um, I remember for my eighth birthday, you know, it was, I was easily pleased, shall we say, they gave me, it was to join a football club. So finally, at eight years of age, I went off to join a football club locally. Um, they bought me a pair of football boots from Woolworths, and that's where I went off to play football. Um, and the kind of the rest is, is history. From a young age, I was telling everybody that I was going to play, um, play football professionally. That's me. I watched the cup final. I mm. watched Liverpool play Newcastle, and um, that was it. I got the bug. I, that's going to be me. That's what I'll end up doing. Of course, everyone thought I was crazy. <laughs> but somehow it turned out right. Well, Woolworths is now close. This is how far back we're going in time. And am I correct in saying you grew up in Oxford, or at least that was your, your I neighbourhood? I did. Um, I came from an Irish family, uh, one from the north, one from the south. Both of them had arrived in Oxford. And, um, yeah, so we're a passionate family, great support from my mum and dad. Um, and they stood on the sidelines. I played as a centre-forward in my early days which would surprise people because I hardly scored any goals. But did you score at, a, at a, a young age? Were you a prolific oh, goal scorer? I, in fact, I was. It was um, I was actually very quick as a young man. And um, I can hear my mum still uh, yahooing in the background as I ran through scoring goals. Um, the physio would shout another bag of sweets every time I hit the back of the net. So they were good days and it was uh, they were winning days. We were kind of reenacting what could happen in years to come. We were, I remember my... Sunday league side, we won the, the league and cup double, double two years on the trout on the on the bounce, um, and I was, you know, want, I was wanting to win from a very young age, and I think I played with a great deal of determination. When I talk back to people, um, school teachers, managers, they didn't really see that kind of determination before or after. Were you into other sports though? Because of the Irish background, I'm going to throw out a guess and say Gaelic football. I played a bit of Gaelic football. Um, it was to be avoided, to be honest. It was um, even more physical. People saw me as a physical player, but when you, I played against men as a, as a kid, basically, as a teenager. So that wasn't easy, yeah, playing in midfield. Uh, it's a good game, mm. but a very physical game. I, I did a lot of uh, athletics. Um, I had quite a... Uh, long jump was, was sort of my thing, but I was a middle-distance runner and I could sprint. So I suppose what you need to be... Uh, to be a decent footballer. Yeah. What about tennis out of interest? Because for those that are unaware, I'm Malaysian, but I got sent to school in Oxford. And it's the same school that you sent your children to, oddly enough. And we were always fascinated by Tim Henman because yeah. he went to the same school that your kids went That's to right. and I went to. And every time, this is long before Andy Murray, but every time Wimbledon came about, it was always Tim Henman. Henman mania, 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 mania. Oxford boy. And Did you play 
I did play tennis and I really enjoyed tennis. Um, it, it, obviously, everyone can play football because it's an easy sport mm. to pick up, but to play tennis was, um, was um, I know you know the city quite well, but Florence Park was where we would have gone to play tennis, but we didn't have rackets. You could, you, you, they would give you, lend them to you. Mm. Uh, so that was probably limited because of what, what you needed, the infrastructure around it, but you could just put down a couple of coats and play football any way you wanted. I, I, the local park where, me, where I lived, I backed onto it and I would look out to see who was coming into the park. And this is from five years of age. Yeah. And as people wandered in, I'd go in to play. And over the years, then I'd challenge people to games in 1v1 situations. It was, you, you needed to prove you were the best in, in the park. And I'm playing against guys that are kids way older than me. Um, so that the, the positioning of our house where we live was perfect for me at that age. Uh, it's a beautiful, beautiful city to grow up in. I, I feel very fortunate, but I'm struggling to name any other footballer from Oxford who made it to the top five. Mark Wright played Mark for Wright? England. Oh, he's from, he's from Oxford originally? Gary Parker. Okay. There aren't too many, you're quite right. Um, and it's something that needs to be promoted in the area, <laughs> to be fair. I'm not really sure why. Uh, Oxford United is, are now uh, in League One. Uh, on their way back, hopefully. Fingers crossed. So, um, but they've not been in the big time for many years. I, I went to the old stadium and I recently, not that recent, but I occasionally go to the new stadium and it's got the cinema there. Uh, yeah. It's like a little mall there. So it's, 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 I yeah, did play different. as an Oxford man uh, for in an Arsenal shirt uh, at the Manor, ground as was, uh, back in 85 when they were in the big time, which was quite a big thing for me. Mm. Um, and my brother, actually, I was sharing a bunk bed with him and he kept he wouldn't let me sleep because Oxford needed to win that game to stay up and he was a big <laughs> Oxford United fan um, so that's how big it was in those days Oxford of course stayed up won the Milk Cup that year probably their finest effort in mm. you know in top level football but as I say they've gone and disappeared a little bit now I'd like to see, see them come back. For you who was your team you'd said your brother's a big Oxford fan were you the same? Well it's a confession that Liverpool was my probably the, the team I Kevin Keegan was my sort of boyhood hero. And how that came about was we, my mum and dad, we, we were living in a sort of mini supermarket and we were selling Newcastle brown ale. Mm. And they were streaming through the shop buying it. My mum didn't know why. And they said, what is a massive game today? FA Cup final, Liverpool, Newcastle. So my mum said, well, okay, that's, that's interesting because he's crazy about football. So she sat me in front of the TV screen and I sat there all day. In those days, the FA Cup final was a whole day affair, mm. looking at all the footage, uh, an extra knockout, mini extra knockout, and the players coming in. You see them in the coaches. You, I was just um, so invested in that, captivated by it. And um, that's the day when I started to tell everybody that I was. this was me, I was going to play. And I, I, I then followed Kevin, Kevin Keegan. He was a striker, I was a striker. Um, but Arsenal Football Club came knocking sort of around the age of about 13. And from then on in, my parents had supported Arsenal because of the link with Ireland. The, the, there's so many Irish players. So I quickly switched over. I was training there, going to the games from, from a young age and in the dressing room, really, um, doing duties in and around those players. And that, that I just become an Arsenal fan immediately. When, going back to Keegan before that, they say never meet your heroes. I've met Kevin Keegan. I think he's a lovely, lovely man. And I'm just going to make the presumption that you've met him quite a few times in your life. Was it the same Well, he picked for you? me for England. There you go. Exactly. When so, he was England manager. Uh, and I had to get this out of the way, um, that he was you know, somebody that I, 
idolised as a kid. And um, he, I think it's probably something that people have said to him many times before because, of course, you know, he was sort of the David Beckham of that mm. era, wasn't he? You know, he was everywhere he looked, Kevin Keegan, and what a fantastic player, European Footballer of the Year. We've just seen Harry Kane now going out to Germany, but Kevin Keegan was... I mean, he set a blazing trail to do that. If he, if Harry Kane can emulate that, it'd be incredible what Keegan did in Germany. Yeah, with Keegan, we used to have a pundit living here in Malaysia. Uh, you would have seen him on TV when you were young, long before you played. Peter Barnes, Man City most famously, left winger, great player. He was in the England squad with Keegan, and they were both here with us, and they were like two kids. Yeah. We took them out to a football field, and I kid you not, they were just running around. These are 60-year-old men, whatever age they were at the time, running around, herring about. And I thought that's enthusiasm right there. Well, amazing. Keegan, I mean, he made it so enjoyable playing for England. There's, there's no doubt. And he left a little bit early. Mm. In fact, he, when he left, the very next game, I captained England. Um, they brought Howard Wilkinson in, in a temporary role, and we were playing Finland. Um, Keegan then stepped out of the, the game against Germany where we'd lost 1-0 at Wembley. So that was a real shock. No one really expected that. We'd had the European Championships in 2000 uh, just before. We were a little bit disappointing. But Keegan had hung on, so he, he left that job very quickly. But the feel-good factor he brought for England was... A, I really enjoyed it. It made it really enjoyable playing for England. Sometimes it was difficult. You know, you've got the Man United players, Liverpool players and everybody. I thought he did the, the biggest effort, really, to bring everybody together because he just made it so enjoyable. How good was he in training? If he got involved at all, I don't know. He did. He used to join in. He made sure I was in his team. Um, I think I put an early tackle in him early on. <laughs> And thereafter, he, was, he used to join in the five-a-sides. No, it was, he had a good staff with him. Mm. I think Arthur Cox, Derek Pazakali were working. He had really good people, people he trusted. Um, was Ray Clements there? As Ray coach? Clements was around it. Yeah. Ray was around the uh, England situation for many, many years, onto, Howard, uh, onto Glenn Hoddle mm. as well. So, yeah, they were, they, they were good days, but we probably should have achieved more with the players we had. Yeah, I think that's been an argument about England for... for Quite a little while. Uh, let's look at Arsenal. Uh, before we focus on the players that you had there, it was a great, great youth setup. What was the setup actually like as a youth player back then? Did you have to clean the boots, the dressing room, the stadium, whatever it might be, hard knocks effectively? Well, in those days, you had four apprentices for the first year and four for the second. So you did all the duties around the club. But I think you kind of felt an affinity then with the stadium, with the dressing rooms. And there was a sense of, you know, those players that had gone before, because you're in there on your own. Mm. Um, and there's a, there's a stillness and a silence, and you can just feel the presence in the dressing room of former players. And you feel that they're there maybe to help you because you've come through the ranks. I kind of felt that affinity with the club. Um, and in 82, I mean, the club doesn't... I, I don't really know why the club doesn't talk about it, but uh, I'd like to. The youth team that we had... Um, was quite remarkable. Uh, six full internationals come out of that youth team. I know that people talk about the, uh, the 92 group from, from Manchester United, but I mean, I think what the boys did at um, Arsenal in 82 was a really good group that came out of there. Uh, Tony Adams was just three months different age to myself. We played together at the back. Um, when Mickey Thomas was playing in those days, left back, went on to be in a, you know, a top player in midfield. David Rowcastle, God rest his soul, played in midfield. And then we had Niall Quinn, who came in late from Ireland, and a young Paul Merson sitting on the bench. So I made that six full internationals that came out of that youth team. 
plus Martin Hayes and Gus Caesar, who went on to play a number of games for the first team. So that probably will never happen again. But that was a really um, hard knock school for me. The competition for places, uh, the quality of the group was really out outstanding. Um, and um, that really set me up for the rest of my career, really. When you look at someone like Tony Adams, and I was going to ask this later, but since his name came up, you would have seen him in his embryotic stages of life as a young footballer, becoming Arsenal captain. Of course, you returned to the club and to where he is now. I mean, it is an extraordinary turnaround that he's made of his life and he's helped so many people. Did you envision how his life would go across Tony now? had an incredible career. Um, he has a statue. Yeah. Um, there's a few, isn't Dennis and the mm. manager now last week um, and Henri as well, great, great talents. Tony was, I probably saw three Tony Adamses in the time that three. I knew him because, yeah, because I saw the original Tony Adams as a young boy coming in, quite shy, um, no real edge to him, good fun to be around. Um, then I came back to the club because I left the club and came back. And it was a different Tony Adams then. I think one, one that was perhaps on a pedestal. Um, one that was obviously having issues away from the game, drinking a lot. Uh, so that was a different Tony Adams. And then the reformed Tony Adams at the end, which was a, probably a return closer to the original Tony Adams that I knew, but was never going to be the same. Um, and because of, throughout this period, I wasn't really a drinker. I was somebody that was un, in the minority at the beginning because I didn't drink. Mm. And then at the end of, um, of course, nobody was really drinking at the end. It had gone full swing. And Tony Adams was very much in, in that group. Um, always a leader. Um, always someone who led from the front. And, um, yeah, he played 600-plus uh, games. I think we probably played, to combined, I think we probably played 11, 1,200 games for the football club. Um, and we're playing in the same youth team. And being told that only one of us was really going to make it. Um, which was probably the wrong thing to say because eventually, you know, you can, yeah, of course, you only really want to play one young central defender, but eventually you can play the pair of us, which is what ultimately happened, but didn't really come together until sort of 98, mm. 97, 98, where that kind of youth team uh, partnership was sort of rekindled properly. If you see him now, what do you call him? Skipper or Tony? Tone? Just Tony. Just Tony. Yeah, Brodders was the, was the nickname. Yeah, I didn't want to bring that up. Back in the day. I didn't want to say that because it's not my place, but... Only Fools and Horses. Yeah, it's based off a very famous English yeah. TV show. Yeah. A so, bit unfortunately. And he was, he was a, a very similar, actually, to, to, to that, but I don't think he let it bother him. No. Um, and as I say, uh, Tony, I mean, went on to lead the club. We were there together, and I left the football club. That was my decision. Uh, my contract was running out. The contract that was put in front of me was, I thought, um, embarrassing. And I decided that I was going to leave. Now, when I left, there was a group of players that then signed new deals, because that was always sort of the order of the day, was that young players at a football club didn't necessarily get looked after in the same way maybe a, a new signing was. I just played 21 games on the bounce. I was 19 years of age. And um, we got, you know, it didn't work out. I became mm. emotional in terms of my decision-making and left. That was fully my decision. I wasn't sold, I wasn't pushed out. Uh, but thank God I went back um, because it was unfinished business and I needed to go back and try and live it again. And um, the dream came true for me then with the trophies that we then ultimately picked up. Yeah. I'm just having a, a strange flashback listening to an interview with Lee Dixon talking about George Graham being quite a... 
thrifty with wages, shall we say. Yes. Yeah, thrifty I think would be the right word, but we don't need to get into that. Uh, and then Arsene Well, he inherited, in fairness to George, he, he walked into that storm because um, I sat outside the manager's office for hours. There, there was a, an array of players going in front of me, big name players sorting out their futures. And George, only, he only had five minutes to talk to me. Um, and I just said, well, that's it, I'm off then. And he was trying to get me to negotiate, but it was, it was kind of like I had to wait till George got there to, uh, to talk to terms with the new manager, having tried to sort something out for the previous three months. So it was kind of like I expected to see some change mm. and only saw the same, uh, the same answer. So anyway, you know, but when we, you know, we all came together again and hopefully, you know, that, that's, the, that's the abiding memory is to people say you should never go back. But I think I proved that wrong. Yeah, definitely. Certainly the case. That's where you started winning trophies once you returned to the club. But how important was George Graham on the football pitch for, for the, the famous Arsenal back line? Uh, I mean, this guy was a striker when he was younger and he becomes this defensive mastermind. One nil to the Arsenal and so forth. And there's all this conversation about what Wenger inherited, which was all these players coached and trained by George Graham. Uh, very much so. And I think the personality that we had, and maybe not so much myself, um, was, was all really borne about by the way that George was in the way that the messages that he gave those players of how to play. So our personalities were formulated by George, really. I think, actually, I, it's interesting, because when George first came in, I think they were the stories of players being tied to a rope, uh, the back four, so that when one moved, the other went with him. and his vision of how he wanted them to press. You see Liverpool do this now, condensing the space. When I came back, um, every session was about trying to sort of fast track you, but it was like, there weren't some, maybe I, it took me too long to work out, to push up because it was against really what I was doing at previous clubs, trying to give cover to people, mm. keeping everybody on side. But eventually once it clicked for me, um, I, I fully understood it. Maybe didn't play my best football under George Graham was maybe too similar to him in terms of personality because he was quite intense. Mm. Um, I found uh, working with um, Arsene Wenger sort of un unraveled that coil of quality that I had, was able to, um, to trust me more whereas, and believe in me more. But George ultimately created that kind of winning mentality that I took into my, into my career. Was it strange to see him much later on in the dugout for Spurs? Because he's an Arsenal, he's an ex-Arsenal player. He's an ex-Arsenal manager, legendary one at that. And now he's managing yeah. the other team in North London. I know he went to Leeds and all that, but this is Tottenham we're talking about. It was, it, it, it was bizarre. But I remember feeling that there's no way we can let this man beat us mm. because, um, you know, George was desperate to, to to win games. You know, he created this intensity, and uh, I, I could, I mean, I couldn't quite believe it when I when I was first sat in the dressing room because there was a. You've heard about this disciplinarian, but in the dressing room, everyone was arguing with the man, with the man. It seemed. I mean, there was there were big characters in this dressing room, and he, he developed that. Um, and I think he tried to tease that out of me as well by saying to me before one game, "I'm gonna if we don't win today, I'm blaming you, and I, and I want more from you in terms of vocally. I want you to lead more." Um, and I thought, hold on, I'm. I was screaming at everybody thereafter, thinking, well, he's blaming me if we lose this. So it mm. kind of like teased out that. But there he was in the opposite dugout suddenly. Um, I think we won that game. I think we scored two goals very, very quickly. And there was a frenzy. It was kind of like there didn't even need to be a team talk that day. Um, I think that was probably a respectful thing for him, really, because that we, 
he was a motivator, mm. and we were really motivated to beat him on that occasion. What about David O'Leary? I need to ask about him, because you talked about how many appearances you and Tony made. Well, the record appearance holder, over 700 appearances by yeah. my last reckoning. Why isn't he regarded as highly as other players at Arsenal? What's your personal I've no, assessment? I have no idea. I think he, I think he is. I think maybe it's just uh, that era. Um, and I didn't, they didn't win too many trophies. Mm. I think David O'Leary eventually won a prem, uh, well, it wasn't a Premier League, but the Championship, wasn't it, in those days? The equivalent of uh, in 89. He'd won uh, FA Cups. I mean, it's an incredible record of games over that period. Um, I think there was a... I think there were some disappointing moments when we played against uh, David Leary's teams when he was managing at Leeds. And, um, you know, there are questions maybe for him on that. But, you know, he seemed hell-bent on trying to stop Arsenal yeah. from winning uh, Premier Leagues. And, you know, stories since that players were told that, you know, you win this game and you won't play at the weekend, you're off for the rest of the season. So he was very keen to beat Arsenal. Um, but, you know, that's his right. He's a competitor. He's now working with a different team. Um, and I think he's rightfully now an ambassador at Arsenal Football Club. So the respect is there. I believe it's there. Um, but maybe I think maybe if you look at someone like Tony Adams, who, you know, obviously missed Mr. Arsenal. He didn't play as many games as David Leary, but certainly won more trophies and mm. um, was synonymous with more success. How important was he for you as a young player, though? Because he was far more experienced than you were when you were. He was good for me when I came in because he had that experience. Um, he was the player, basically, that I had my photograph taken with the first day I arrived at the club because that was, he was playing in the position that I wanted to play mm. in. And he'd been on a similar pathway. He'd, OK, he'd come from Ireland, but he'd come through the youth system uh, along with Frank Stapleton, David, uh, Liam Brady and a whole host of players. It was a traditional thing at Arsenal, so someone you look to to try and emulate. I did a different journey, but I suppose Tony Adams got the closest, if not... Um, surpassing David Leary and what he achieved. Yeah. You even went out on loan, didn't you, to Brighton at one point? I went out on loan and I think that this is, I think it's a great thing for young players to do. It was the making of me. I think when I went out on loan, um, some people go out on loan for development, some go out on loan because they're not quite sure. I, I think they sent me on loan because they weren't sure. And I came, I came straight back and went into the Arsenal first team. So... Um, I surprised a few people. I didn't surprise myself, but I think there's a few people at the football club that said, OK, um, he's, catching, he's catching the eye. I was really enjoying myself. Brighton was a fantastic experience for me. I went to play right back, actually. It was a great deal of freedom. It wasn't really my position, but I was able to sort of fly forward and, and, uh, and show what I could do because it, it was a big thing to getting into the first team and it was becoming too big. Um, I do feel that step. When I first got into the Arsenal first team, my debut West Bromwich album, I, I honestly wondered what all the fuss was about. I, I found first team football easier than I found reserve team football. Um, and I realised that if you can win games, you, you stay in the team. And we went on this incredible run when I first got in the Arsenal first team. I think it was about nine games really before we, we lost a game. And mm. uh, I realised that, okay, people can say you, you're lacking you maybe lack leadership, you maybe lack quality in possession, because everyone looks at what you can't do rather than what you can do. But I realise if I can be in a winning team, then I stay in it. And so that was sort of reinforcing why I needed to, to win games. And I, yeah. I took that with me um, all the way through. Mm. Was it John Lukic in goal at the time? John Lukic it in was, goal. Yeah. I'd, I'd played actually with the great Pat Jennings um, 
in the youth team, he, sorry, in the reserve team, he dropped down one. And that was an incredible experience to be uh, around him. And I was looking through, I played with Neville Southall. Yeah. Uh, of course, the great David Seaman. Jens Lehmann shouldn't be underestimated. So I was very lucky with, um, I hope I haven't missed anybody out no, there. No, there were others along the way. There were some amazing goalkeepers. It's, I think that's important, actually, to have... Um, Pat Jennings was a very calm man, um, an air of quality. Neville was um, very aggressive, probably the hardest working goalkeeping trainer I've ever seen in my life. Crazy, mm. crazy between the posts. And then Dave was probably nearer to Pat Jennings again, very calm. calm. And I like that kind of calmness around me. I, I, I think we, we see that now with, um, with Pickford where we look at him and we feel we just want him to calm down a little bit. And of course, he's going to have to make saves. He looks so angry every time he has to make a save. Yeah, he's there to make saves. And Dave was um, Dave didn't have to make too many, but when he did, it was always something outstanding. Well, last year he's uh, picked for that. Is he spoke up about how he went to see a therapist to just sort of? I think I don't know. I presume that's one of the things they talked about. Just to it is, but in the moment, state. it's hard to do that. You don't want to take too much away from him mm. in terms of his play. But nonetheless, I'm you know when I look over my shoulder, I, I like looking at a calm goalie. Yeah, uh, it's just funny because Lukic and Dave Seaman, their, their paths have kind of crossed over the years. The Leeds and Arsenal and Incredible. at one point uh, Dave Seaman was let go from Leeds in 82, wasn't he? Because they said he wasn't good enough. And, uh, and Lukic took his place. Yeah. And then obviously David took his place then at Arsenal. It's just this weird sort so of crazy. relationship uh, along the way. Um, and on the topic of Neville Southall, I was going to ask later, but he won the PFA Player of the Year, didn't he, in 85? I think it was 85. For a goalkeeper to win that, I mean, Levy Yashin in the 60s, Neville Southall, Peter Shilton. Peter Shilton, these accolades don't come along very often for keepers. No, but he, he was a force of nature. I mean, he had a, an S-shaped spine, so it was kind of walking miracle when it, that he could actually take to the pitch anyway. I mean, he'd be the first one there in the morning uh, playing uh, head tennis in an indoor gym that we had and the last one to leave in the afternoons. And, it, and I think he was living the furthest away from the training ground. So he was totally committed and uh, an eye-opener to me when I saw how he worked um, close up. I remember, because I play as a goalkeeper terribly, I bought his book in the 90s, training manual. But one of the things he talked about in his book was don't leave the bottle or whatever you have in the goal because it gives a striker something to aim at. So you try to put it away from the goal thinking there's little psychological tricks he was trying to employ. Well, the detail, and uh, it was interesting on a match day, he never actually faced a single shot in the warm-up. He would put the goalkeeper, the second keeper, in the goal um, and almost make a fool of him in, in a way. <laughs> but he wanted, I think, on a match day just to be calm, as, as calm as he could be. He probably felt he needed the right balance. Mm. Through the week, um, he'd be flying through the air, saving everything, uh, all action... It was, it was incredible. I, mean, I really enjoyed watching I used to watch Bob Wilson train Pat Jennings the great Bob back Wilson. in the day. Yeah. Um, I was always fascinated by the goal. I think the goalkeepers were kind of ahead of the game, really, when it came to finding ways to create realism on the training pitch. Um, and certainly Bob Wilson was one of those. And Neville, I uh, forget his trainer, but um, he was doing something exactly the same. And the goalkeepers now taking it even further. When you watch their sessions, it's quite amazing. Yeah, but... Uh, Big shout out to Bob Wilson, obviously part of the Arsenal team in the 70s, winning trophies there, training, uh, even training David Seaman. I think they, they, they were best mates as well. Him and, uh, they Bob certainly Wilson. were. Um, I think you've got to have that relationship with the coach. Mm. And Bob was uh, brilliant for Arsenal for, for many years. Yeah. 
it's an amazing story and he has his own foundation for his daughter who passed away, Willow. He's just a class individual, yeah. isn't he? Uh, worked in the media, so he had a, a double career. Back and in did the day, that he with, was... um, with a plum as well. Yeah. Um, you talked about why you opted to leave Arsenal, but then why did you choose Villa? Because they, I know they were European champions, uh, cup champions in about four years before you went, but they just fought off relegation. Yeah, it was... Um, Graeme Turner was uh, a chance meeting. I'd been to watch Oxford United play a game and he bumped into me at the game. And um, he asked me, is, is, is everything OK at Arsenal? I said, well, I hadn't signed a contract yet. It was just um, a throwaway comment. Mm. And then um, around that time when I, when I sort of walked, left the, that meeting with George Graham, I had a phone call from... There was no, in, there was no phone call before. Just the, the next day, a phone call. And it was, again, a spur-of-the-moment thing. It was a reaction thing. I was still angry about the, the, the meeting with George. And uh, they asked me would I go to, to, to Birmingham to discuss um, about going there. So I went with my father, uh, who was kind of uh, the furthest thing from a football agent. He was uh, in construction in, in Oxford in a company. And we were, we were both probably naive at that stage. And we went along and um, Doug Ellis persuaded me to sign for Aston Villa. Offered me four or five times what Arsenal were offering me, uh, signing on fees, um, and basically we just looked at the package. We didn't really look beyond that. And um, I signed something which went in a safe because they'd actually made an illegal approach because my contract wasn't up. Mm. I can reveal all these things now. Um, and I remember getting, coming back and thinking, I've, I've made a mistake, what have I done? But I thought, and I explained this to my dad, well, we've, we've, given, our, we've given our word. We're, we're a family where we give our... So I thought, okay, I'm, I kind of laid my bed, I'm going to have to lie in it. And I wasn't happy, I wasn't really convinced. And the first day in training, I remember watching the training, and we hardly did anything. And I remember coming thinking, well, in the, under Don Howe, the training was unreal in terms of the work rate, the preparation, the, the detail. And I was really concerned about um, what I'd turned up at. Yeah. But uh, a lot of the players were saying to me, why did you leave Arsenal? I remember Paul Elliott speaking to me, saying, what did you do there? And I, and I thought, you arrive somewhere and you think, hold on, I shouldn't be here, mm. got it wrong, but I had to get on with it. Um, I don't think it served me well at the end of my tenure at Villa because I was always thinking I needed to leave and quite probably I should have stayed when there was a possibility I didn't know to play, to play with Paul McGrath, which would have been a really interesting situation, but Graham Taylor didn't feel fit to tell me that. That trust wasn't there. I was talking to lots of clubs when I left Villa. Yeah. I spoke to Manchester United and Forest, and that was fascinating, talking to Brian Clough, I can tell you. Ah, wow. So we did all of those things. And then, um, yeah, so w I ultimately I then I left Aston Villa then. So, uh, But it was tricky that, you know, Steve Hodge wanted to leave, Tony Rigo wanted to leave, all really good players. I remember reading halfway through the season, this lot are too good to go down, which always makes me laugh when I see that a team's too good to go down because you're simply not. No. And we slipped out of the, um, of the top division. Bitterly disappointing. Bitterly disappointed. And then watching Arsenal at, the, uh, at that same season go to Anfield in that um, incredible game. Seeing, pleased to see half of my uh, youth team colleagues you know, doing really well mm. in the team, um, but thinking pff, the irony that I was now going to be playing, you know, in the second division the following season, as it was called then. Yeah. Life has a funny way of working out in the long run. We should stress that. 
Can I yeah. ask, because you said you were fast as a young man and you were very young when you were at Villa, could you keep up with someone like Tony Rodrigo, who I've been told is extremely I could actually, rapid? yeah. I was, I was in a... Graham used to put us into groups and I, they put us in a group with Tony Daly, who was probably the quickest of the, of the group, with Tony, Tony Rodrigo and, and Alan McAnally as well, was, mm. um, was really fast. So I was with them in, in pre-season, so that wasn't an easy situation. Um, with sprint training, because we did so much work, Graham was like, um, you almost needed a map and a compass to get through pre-season training. It was going to be so much running with Graham Taylor. Uh, again, God rest his soul, fantastic manager. England as well for you. Yeah, but when he arrived at Villa, I mean, I, I, I immediately knew that this guy, someone please wrap him in cotton wool, because we're going to be successful. And it had been turbulent. Billy McNeil had come in to take over from Graham Turner, who was sacked after six games. Billy McNeil came in. Yeah. He came in. Then there was an interim manager from within, and then Graham arrived, and it was uh, quite incredible how he burst in, told Doug Ellis that um, to leave, that he was now in charge, um, you know, and told us that the difference between him and all the previous managers that he'd chosen Doug and he'd chosen Villa, unlike the other managers who were chosen by Doug Ellis, and that things would be different. And if anybody wanted to leave, there's the door, go through it now. Quite a few people looked at that door. Mm. Um, I think 11 players left, 11 players came in, and um, he turned it round. Amazingly, we got promoted that season. So that was uh, fantastic to do that at Villa because I felt embarrassed that we'd helped to take down a team that only, you know, under five years previously had been, they'd won the European Cup. And Villa were there, they were being relegated. Yeah. So it, was, it meant a lot to me to get back into Aston Villa. But I think it was so turbulent in that first year, I was always thinking, you know, I'm going to leave at some point. So I took that chance when my contract ran out again on that third season. When you were at Villa, you were highly regarded as a player. I believe you, you won some uh, personal awards there, Player of the Year and so forth. Why Everton? Why did you choose Everton as your next destination? I know they, they are a rich historical club, but I'm sure other clubs were in for you as well. Well, there were. I spent, I, I spent hours talking to Sir Alex Ferguson. Um, it's Alex? Yeah, I, I couldn't actually find a way out. I, I spoke to um, Brian Clough, and Brian Clough locked me in his office for three hours. Um, unbelievable, charismatic person. I've never met anybody like him or, or since. Um, tried to get me to sign, asked me to sign a blank contract, go and talk to... Because um, he knew Derby County were interested. I spoke to Arthur Cox. They, they really pushed the boat out. Um, we couldn't find an agreement with um, Manchester United, and I felt, I felt that Sir Alex Ferguson didn't really want me. I just had that feeling, on, and I'd, where I'd left Villa, I joined Arsenal, and sort of jumped, and not really looked where I was going. Mm. This time I had a really good look around, and I just thought that there was something with Colin Harvey. And the foot Everton, I went to the training ground, really liked the, the intimate feel. The manager believed in me. And I thought, you know, Everton, there they are, they're playing this. They were really reasonably successful in that period. They'd won the, the, the championship. They'd been in FA Cups that previous year. They'd been, of course, that after the Hillsborough, that dreadful situation. And I was arriving there just after that. Um, so I thought, no, I'm going to go for it. And I went to join Everton. Yeah, I mean, I didn't realise you were locked in a room for three hours. and. Now I'm thinking back to when I interviewed Martin O'Neill here. Martin O'Neill, his history, of course, with Brian Clough and all the success they had on the European stage. If there's one person I wish I could have interviewed, it would probably be Brian Clough, the late Brian Clough. 
But what he did at Nottingham Forest was 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 quite remarkable. Back to back, um, back yeah, to back, back to back. Europe. I mean, a team that had just come out of the second division just a few years before, how he turned it around. So you have to listen and take notice. I just thought that maybe for Brian Clough, it was maybe coming towards the end. Mm. Um, and I think they did. They got relegated just a few years after that. But he was really keen to have a real crack at winning it again. Um, as I say, it was um, it was an incredible interview. You know, it, it, it was wide ranging political views, um, my views about any subject you can imagine. But I, as I say, I think he was just trying to keep me in the office really because he thought I was on the way to see Derby County, which was just up the road. Mm. We didn't. We were going there the next day. It was a week before I was married, and we went to speak to all these clubs. It was incredible trying to pack all this in. Um, and then Villa came back with um, a completely different offer right at the end of the week, which uh, probably should have sat and looked at more closely because, you know, sometimes it's better the devil you know than the devil you don't. Mm. But I leapt and went to join Everton. With the Everton dressing room, I was looking at through some of your squads and there's some characters there. Yeah. We talked about Neville Southall. I'm just going to list a few. I don't know them personally, but I can imagine them being characters. Um, Kevin Ratcliffe, Stuart McCall, Dave Watson, Pat Nevin, who I've met. He's big into his music, <laughs> so he's massively into his music. Graham Sharp, who you mentioned, I've met him before. Andy Hinchcliffe, Kevin Sheedy, Norman Whiteside. I mean, what a yeah. player he was. Storming Norman, yes. Yeah, but until he had to retire, I think he was around 25, 26 a, years old. Yeah, I, it was a big loss to the game, Norman, going out when he did. I think that last season he still scored 12 goals from midfield, but he had a catalogue of, of injuries, you know, knees, um, I think he had problems with his feet as well. So he did a podiatrist, I think. <laughs> yeah, that's probably why. But he had, um, I mean, incredible start, didn't he? Playing for Northern Ireland, the youngest player to, in the World to, Cup. to play in a World Cup. Um, and as I say, in those days, they were they were doing full cartilage removal, wasn't it? So I think that kind of affected him, and he was he did really well to to to, to hang on as long as he did. But he was cut cut short. So there was full of characters. Kevin Ratcliffe, the captain. Um, the only thing was I found when, when I arrived there, it was, and it was interesting because I used this at the end of my career, I've never really spoken about this, but I think there comes a, a point at a football club when you've been successful as, as a group that you have to try to accept the new players that come in. And I felt there was a resistance there from some of the senior players to accept. So the likes of Cotty and McCall, who, I mean, if you look at McCall, went to Rangers and was incredibly successful. He was definitely good enough to, to, to win things there. Mm. But then that group wasn't really accepting of the new player, very critical, like it wasn't a togetherness in the, in the, in the group. And Colin Harvey was um, now the new manager, their manager, Howard Kendall, and God rest his soul as well. He, he came back eventually, which was a very odd situation because Colin then came back as his assistant and all that was happening at once. But essentially, they'd lost Howard Kendall, this group. They'd lost one or two players, pivotal players, and they didn't think the next group were good enough. And I've and I agreed to differ with that. And there was a bit of a, you know, there was a, a big scene. I got into a, a public scrap with one of the players. Um, but at the end of my career, I thought, well, look, when the change is coming, I'm going to embrace the change. And I'm going to actually, Colo Torre was coming to take my place. And I helped him to take my place because of what I'd gone through. It, and that doesn't make me perfect or I'm being righteous about that group. I just thought it, it was something I learned. And I just felt it was turbulent in Everton. It could have been much better if we could have learned from these great players who'd won lots of things. But instead, there was a little bit of a, a wall between us. Um, and um, ultimately, Colin Harvey couldn't find harmony in that dressing room. 
and we couldn't come together as a group to win something, um, and it fell away for Everton. How do you help a player replace you? What did you do for Colo Torre? Well, I could see that he was um, good enough to take my place. I know someone was on this show recently saying that I didn't think he was big enough or I don't know where that's come from because I think if you ask Colo Torre, um, he can't ever offer up that anyone's helped him any more than I did. I, I told um, Arsene Wenger, this is the guy, we're playing him on the wing. We're playing him on the wing and when he's like a wind-up clock, when, when it when it runs out of energy, he just stops. He needs to be a centre-half. He's a defender. He's a physical player. Um, he loves tackling. I mean, he, he is well talked about how he, you know, flew, he was tackling so much, he actually put Arsene Wenger on his backside during a training session. So, no, I, I, I kind of, like, gave him the tools, helped him. I mean, he had the ability. There's no doubt about that. Um, but in those first few steps you get in the, into the Premier League, you need help and uh, about opponents, who he's playing against. So my role changed in that 2004 group, only playing 10 games. Um, I was really helping the, the, the whole group, but from, you know, Cola was getting 24 hours help, really, to sort of bed into that team, and he then went from strength to strength and was quite remarkable that season. Yeah. Um, final few things on Everton. There's a f I've been very lucky in that I get to go to games and watch these high-profile matches, but there are very few matches where you can stop and look around you and you think this is the atmosphere or something else. A Merseyside derby yeah. is one of those. Yeah. What was it like for you as a player? I mean, at Anfield or at Goodison, whatever it might be, because I can imagine it being very intimidating, particularly back in the day, as opposed to now in 2023. It, it, it always amazed me. I, I always thought that um, if you think back to some of those players that Liverpool had at the time when, when Beardsley obviously did, he, he came to Everton, he played for us, thankfully. But they had the likes of John Barnes and obviously Rushy and diff all these different players. But it was a great leveller whenever there was a, a Mersey, Merseyside derby. I could never quite believe it. I'd gone there for Villa, gone there with Arsenal, and they still play with that confidence and they're not affected. But they, something would get into their players' heads in that game. I even play, I remember playing in the 4-4 game, which was just a remarkable <laughs> match, which culminated in... Kenny Dalglish then resigning from the football club. I think there was a lot of stresses on him. Mm. Uh, gone through Hillsborough, he carried the club brilliantly through that period. Um, but it was still a shock. Um, we still had another game to play and Kenny would, was, was leaving. So they were remarkable matches, incredible atmosphere. And the Goodison faithful, if you put your foot in, if you give everything for them, they'll give it, they'll give you, give it back in you know, bucket loads. And I just uh, remember... I think actually the f it was against Aston Villa and I hadn't really endeared myself to the, to the uh, Everton fans. And I remember playing against Villa and I just thought um, I haven't, it hasn't gone well for me. And um, I started putting my foot in and maybe it was against Villa or whatever and there was the response I had. And they, they pretty well got me, the Everton fans, into the England team because mm. their support continued singing my name for England. Um, and my confidence then went through the roof. Howard Candle came in, started playing me regularly in the team. I was playing in a three previously. We went to a back four. And I really enjoyed that period at, at Everton. Wanted, as I say, I wanted to stay there a bit, a bit longer. Howard Kendall was a fantastic manager. A Colin, legend of the club. Colin was a coach, really, and a very good one at that. So that, they reformulated that par partnership. And it was just a shame that um, Howard wasn't able then to sort of find that success again at the club. Yeah, I, when I think of Everton, I remember when uh, Lampard took over and the flares are going out and what the fans did for the players and they stayed up yeah. that season. But I was also there when Rafa lost against Liverpool and wow, the atmosphere that night 
at the end of the final whistle. And they had beaten Arsenal mm. with Rafa, and I was there that night as well. It was, uh, it was cold. It was a freezing cold night, but the temperature dropped another 10 degrees after the Merseyside derby. Well, it came a bit toxic as well uh, a couple yeah. of times it can uh, be last in, year. In that stadium as well, where it was so close. Yeah, and it's, it's, um, I'm really pleased Everton stayed up. I think Sean Dyche came, came in, and, and I think we have to thank Sean Dyche for keeping them up. Simple, simple as that. I think they'd have gone down if it would, um, anybody else had gone there. Um, they haven't really improved the, the group too much this year, but I fully expect them to stay up. They've only got to be better than three other teams. And if mm. you look at Luton and Sheffield United now, um, and Burnley, we saw the first game of the season losing. So I think Everton will be OK this year. Just want to put this uh, at time of recording. There's only been one game played this Premier League season, which was Manchester City travelling to Turf Moor and beating Burnley. So who knows what we could be in store for. These could be famous last words, talking about Luton and all of that. Um, but, well, that's why we love the Premier League. Going back, Arsenal. What was it like to walk back through those doors again as a player? But a more mature player, an older player, a more experienced player. Well, back to the, the, the club at that point, really, was... It was like walking, it was a time capsule. The hybrid hadn't changed, hardly at all. Um, so you're coming back to familiar surroundings, just maybe the, the clock end had changed slightly with the, the boxes and then they'd done a little bit of work to the, well, they hadn't done any work at that point to the, to the North Bank. So the training ground was the same, hadn't really gone anywhere. I mean, of course, there was to be massive changes take place once Arsene Wenger arrived, the brand new training ground that we went to and then ultimately to go to the Emirates. But then it was uh, it was pretty well in a time capsule. Um, there were, I would like to have been more of my youth team colleagues still there. David Rowcastle had, had gone, Mickey Thomas had gone, um, all those players. And Tony Adams was that sort of common denominator that that was still there. That was nice. A few of the staff, Gary Lewin, who'd been a, a player there, now was the physio. But it was very much, you know, look, unfinished business. Let's get back to this football club. I think the fans were a little bit uncertain as to why we were buying another central defender. It seemed that um, that George was, you know, collecting central defenders, and they probably wanted money spending elsewhere. And you know, I wasn't returning back as the prodigal son, put it that way. I think the fans were looking for me to sort of earn the right to to get their respect, and that probably took quite a few years. Mm. Speaking of the older names, I just remembered meeting one. Uh, I think he just retired not too long ago. Vic Akers. Vic was a kit man, yes, yeah. and um, also. Um, the ladies' team manager, an incredible, well, the Arsenal's most successful manager, actually. If you look through the number of trophies that he won, mm. he was doing two jobs at once, Vic. He did an incredible job. He gave me a pair of boots. Yeah. <laughs> yeah I walked into the dressing room after a match with Kevin Campbell because I said, I'm going to leave now to buy a pair of boots. And Kevin said, no, 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 no. We're at the Emirates. You just follow me. He took me in. And Jack Wilshire came and shook my hand. And Pierre-Emerick Aubameyang came and shook my hand. They probably thought I was some investor. <laughs> I wasn't. <laughs> I really yeah. wasn't. I was just there. Um, just Kev, Kev is a great boots. guy. Kev Campbell is another one. I, I really enjoyed being around Kev. Um, and Vic was incredibly generous. You know, they're probably somebody else's boots, but... Um, yeah, he, it was um, a pair of Puma boots who were the sponsors at the time, I sort of remember. Yeah, I never used to like to ask Vic. He's gone now yeah. uh, for shirts. He, he'd be inundated with players, former players coming back, asking him for bits and pieces. Uh, Tony Donnelly was our very first kit man, um, and yeah, that was um, that was tricky. Uh, tricky because uh, Tony was always looking for excuses to bring <laughs> us in on a Sunday to help him to uh, clean the boots. So in those days, if you were uh, seen in and around the first in dressing room, 
unexpectedly you were invariably coming in on a Sunday and that was a, that was a big penalty because we all wanted to be going home for the weekend. Yeah. When you were a young player there at Arsenal, just humour me, whose boots did you clean? Gosh, I, you'd clean all of them. All um, of them? Yeah. Okay. Because that, that was how it was. You, I thought you were given like a player. Well, yes, I, I don't remember um, being actually given anyone in particular. We, we did things a little bit differently at Arsenal. So some players were sort of on, on a cleaning boots situ uh, duty, some were on balls and bibs, some were on, um, on other, you know, putting out equipment on the pitches. So we kind of did it differently. So we all mucked in as a group, but um, never really did anybody's boots individually. Did anybody give a good tip for Christmas? <laughs> Not to my knowledge. <laughs> I, remember, I remember us actually, strangely, we, the club used to give us a turkey, you know, like... Each. Yeah, so like, it's kind of like they give you this. It was a tradition, must have been a tradition for the young players. Uh, don't remember receiving any money from the players, but we got a turkey at Christmas, and it was a case of getting home as quick as I could to get it in a freezer or get in a fridge before this thing was going to go off. Oh. Wow, I was not expecting an answer. <laughs> Usually, players will give boots to to the apprentice, or you know, a five pound yeah. tip for Christmas, whatever it might be. But I've never heard of a yeah. club giving a turkey. Well, I think the players whip round to give us the, that as a gift. Yeah. That's what happened. That's special. Um, personally for you, when you did go back to Arsenal, did you feel like you had a point to prove? Were you driven by that? Of course. You know, you want, first of all, it's about getting in the team. Mm. You know, I'd, I'd left and Steve Bold had come in and, you know, maybe I'd opened that door up. Um, that was something that, that happened. He took full advantage of that. He wasn't going to let go of that position lightly. Uh, Andy Linnigan had also come in. And Andy had won, won the FA Cup for Arsenal, and one of those trophies that I'd sat and watched, couldn't play. So there was competition not just from Steve Bold, it was from, from Andy, there was other outside, you know, other players there as well coming through the ranks. So it was, yeah, it was just a case of actually getting the show back on the road, really, and getting back in an Arsenal jersey. Um, I was really pleased to be back. I had to pinch myself, really couldn't believe I was there, and I was determined that um, we were going to do well. I mean, it started off initially pretty well winning that trophy, the, the uh, Cup Winners' Cup trophy with George. Um, but then, of course, George Graham lost his job and there was a lot of publicity around that, mm. um, which left a bad taste in the mouth, really. Um, Did I think it shock the, you? I think the players have forgiven George for that. Uh, I think players had... It seemed ironical that there was, sort of, there was money involved when I think the players were really trying hard to... You know, it was well documented. I think the Arsenal players' contracts were, weren't the greatest in the... In the in the top division, I think Arsene Wenger asked me to go and talk to to Ken Fryer as soon as he arrived, saying, "You know, your contract's not right. You need to go and get that sorted." And that was a group of us, um, and that sort of hung about, I think, from from the George Graham days. But then George was running the ship his way, and he was obviously given a budget, and a, you know, he's never really we never really discussed that with him. Um, but I do feel, you know, it was it was really sad to see George go in the way that he did. I think he'd done an amazing job at Arsenal. Yeah. Uh, as a player as well, not only a player, as a manager. manager. Um, and again, I, I, we don't really see too much of him now at the football club. Mm. I think that's something that's going to change. And hopefully, we see him more of him and more of Arsene Wenger in the future, in and around the director's box. Yeah. When you went back, you were cup tied. Were you frustrated having to play different positions? So you were defensive mid sometimes, <laughs> right back, left back. Centre half, as we know, but you seem to be all over the shop. Well, there was just yeah. I mean, you could say that. It, it, maybe it found it, the fans were finding it difficult to sort of 
was I going to be a utility player, a squad player, because I was playing in all these different positions, trying to give the guys a bit of a rest because they play in so many games. We were in the League Cup, FA Cup finals, weren't they? So, no, that was just the, the difficulty. And then when we went into Europe, I was doing a man-marking job in, in midfield. So I kind of got this sort of uh, jack-of-all-trades um, job to do. And probably that didn't help looking back in terms of trying to cement myself into the Arsenal team at that point. What was it like with Bruce Rioch? I feel almost sorry for him because you, you're, in, you're sandwiched in between two greats, two greats of Arsenal Football mm. Club, of football in mm. general. Yeah, I, I, Bruce was actually good for me in a way because uh, I remember Tony Adams being, um, being injured for a spell. If you remember after the Euros 96, mm. he couldn't actually take to the pitch. He picked up injuries. Um, and other issues that Tony had had. So um, Bruce put, put me into the team and made me captain. And I played uh, either in midfield or in the middle of a, of a back three, or the right of a back three. So I was never short of games under Bruce Rioch, and he definitely gave me more of a, a sort of a standing at the football club because, you know, you're on the outside a little bit looking in. These guys had formulated um, friendships and relationships with one another. And it was quite a tough school, the back four. I, I very much found myself in that group eventually. Um, really enjoyed playing with, with, with Lee Dixon. I hardly ever had to look right because, you know, he was, his communication was so good that you had that confidence that he was going to be there. I mean, when that changed, of course, Lauren then came in and the mm. Arsenal back four started to change. Ashley Cole came in for, for Nigel. Um, but pretty well, Tony Adams was there throughout. Sol Campbell then came and then... That kind of evolved into the um, to the unbeaten team. Um, Tony then left, of course, at the end of the 2002 season, where he had lots of injuries. I broke my leg that season as well, so there was lots of um, of problems. But we still managed to, to to win the league. But the Wenger the Wenger um, situation was playing incredible football. How he kind of turned us around from being noted as like, yo, you guys, you, all you can do is defend and, and get and call a good offside. And suddenly we were like, no, no, we, we played with the ball. We stopped doing all the defensive stuff, but we still had it in our makeup. And it was all about expressing, playing, um, developing the play, working on our technique, chipping balls into the front players. Uh, we did so much work. It was really pleasurable and really enjoyable. And then on a on a Saturday, you'd think, well, OK, I've been practising this all week. I, I will clip that ball over the last defender. because I've been And then suddenly it would come off and you'd see Dennis spinning into the channel uh, and scoring goals. And it, was, it, was, it became this beautiful football. And the, the brand and the, what we were noted for changed massively. It used to be 1-0 to the Arsenal, which yeah, we were a part of. And all of a sudden, we were playing this beautiful football. So it was, um, it was very fulfilling. It felt much more re rewarding that you could feel more complete. Uh, I'm not, I don't want to knock the way that George played because that formulated our personality, but this somehow now was much more rounded uh, and much more real and enjoyable. Be honest, how much did you know about Arsene Wenger before he joined the club? Because nowadays, if he was to join Arsenal Football Club now, you have a tablet, you have a mobile phone, you have a computer, you mm. have laptops, you have YouTube, you can find out anything about an individual. But back then, that wasn't the case. Well, the only thing I'd read, Glenn Hoddle was uh, a respected player and he'd worked with him at Monaco. And I'd read something there about how, you know, what a great coach he was. 
And I thought, well, okay, if Glenn Hoddle's saying these you know, the good things, then we, we, we need to take notice. Um, but I think it, it became very obvious in almost the first meeting, this guy was um, so nice. I, I was kind of worried, do nice guys win things? That was mm. my abiding memory um, of, he was he's meticulous as well, because I was a little bit concerned that I, of course, Bruce Wright was suddenly um, lifting my status at the club, playing me in midfield. Can you believe I'm playing centre midfield with Bruce Rock. Um That wasn't to continue. I went to play at the back with with, uh, with Arsene Wenger. But he said, look, I've watched all the games. I've watched all the tapes. Uh, you play that way for me and um, you'll be in the team. Absolutely no problem. So took all that away. And I then felt that we weren't um, listening to all these speeches from a new manager. We This was... In, in a way, the pressure was back on us. We all had a 15-minute meeting with him, which ran into half an hour to an hour for some of the players. Mine was quite quick because it was to the point. And um, we were left in no doubt how this man wanted to play. And it was um, totally in incredibly enjoyable. Some of the players he were bring was bringing in was, I mean, Anelka came in, a young kid from France, Patrick Vieira. Um, the quality was uh, unreal. Who wouldn't? Embrace that, you know. He was giving us an opportunity to to extend our careers. Uh, I remember Mark Overmars. Uh, I played played against him for England, and that on for, you know Des Walker might want to look away from that with that that night. But Overmars's pace was was on another level. I mean, I think when he disappeared eventually, you know Gary Neville was delighted because mm. he couldn't sleep the night before he played against Overmars. He was so quick; it was as if someone had picked him up and placed him on the pitch. Um, so you had all that talent and you were training against them every day. So you knew what you what the opposition were, were up against. And um, yeah, we, it was like um, suddenly Arsenal had been transformed overnight into this, you know, incredibly fast flowing football team. And we were all suddenly being told that we were we could play now. We were all complete players. So it was, yeah, quite an uplifting change. What about off the pitch upkeeping? The diet, all these restrictions that came into place. Now it's the it's the normal. Everyone knows about it. But back then it was a bit unusual. But you yourself, we had dinner last night. You take care of your body. You seem to be very focused on what you consume now. Were you one of the early adoptees of the diet well, restrictions? I wasn't a drinker, mm -hmm. uh, but very much the, the the diet now is sort of followed on from the Wenger years. So it started there from the Wenger years coming in. It did. Uh, we were kind of like chew to win became uh, a motto. <laughs> And then all of that was explained to us, but it wasn't like um, it wasn't like being with a, your father. It was, it was a case of he would actually delegate these, this learning process to other people. So a dietitian would come in. Um, we had then sports scientists who come in to help. So everything was changing. Um, you, uh, you, there would be a blood test. Um, very early on, they found out that I was anemic, and I'd been playing with this uh, lack for of years, iron. lack of iron, um, and then they. I couldn't digest the uh, the iron, so they, they gave me vitamin C. But we were regularly tested, so suddenly, you know, I'm taking zinc and all these all these minerals and things that were I was inefficient with, and feeling a million dollars now on the pitch. And I didn't really know if it was the food, if it was the supplements, if it was the stretching and the the changing of the way we trained. So we would stretch before training, stretch after. We never stretched after in the past, so there was like a, a recovery. I didn't know what was making me feel so good. Um, but I wasn't going to drop any of it. I was going to totally be engaged in, in what we were doing. And I think that was the same for virtually every other player. 
So you felt like Superman eventually uh, in that period. And then when you look around a dressing room and you see such great talent, as I used to say before the games, just take a look around, guys. You know, you won't, I mean, for me, I don't want to be disrespectful. I had in a youth team that was incredible when I was used to that. Um, and in football, you're, you're pushed against each other to, to get there, aren't you? Because we've always got to be better than someone else. But you have to be in a decent team mm. where your colleagues are at a good level. Otherwise, you're not going to win anything. And suddenly, I'm looking around this dressing room at the likes of Anelka, and I'm giggling at how good they are in realising that this doesn't, come ha this doesn't happen very often. I was lucky because it happened for maybe seven or eight years under Wenger. And I'd say it before every game to, to, to make my players feel like they you know, how good they are, because sometimes they need reminding. But it would remind me of, I've just got to do my job, because um, there's, there's no weaknesses in this dressing room. This is like a really top group of players. Um, and so it proved in 97, 98, where we went on that incredible run of 10 games to, to and you don't do that unless you've got people completely focused and at boiling point. Yeah. What about Wenger as a man? Because having talked to a lot of footballers, so many speak highly of Sir Alex Ferguson and what he does for players off the pitch. I've heard a few stories as well about Arsene Wenger helping individuals, and I think there's probably no better example than how highly Tony Adams speaks about him and how he extended his career just by being at the club and all the issues which Tony had and how he helped him. I mean, did you find the same with Wenger as a man oh, off the pitch? Sure, yeah. I mean, I, as I say, I, you know, I was a bit of a sprung coil and he, he kind of unraveled that. Um, I remember before the uh, FA Cup final and um, we were, you know, I'd missed all these, as I say, I'd, I'd missed a succession of finals where I was cup tied and then I was injured. And I was out there on the pitch um, a couple of days before and I was doing extra training and a tap on the shoulder from the manager saying, what are you doing? And I said, what am I doing? And he said, no, 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 you're in fantastic shape. You know, you're, you're playing brilliantly. You don't need any more, off you go, go in. And I, and I thought, he's right, you know, I don't, I don't, I probably would have got injured if I'd have stayed out there any longer. Um, so that was um, very much Arsene Wenger was always trying to protect me. And I felt there was a, a definite more, more of a care from Arsene Wenger, uh, more of a belief. And if there was an issue, he'd say, no, you'll find a way. You'll, I trust you, you'll find a way. And that's all I needed. And to be honest, in, in, in the jobs I do now, I feel the same way. If I'm uh, an analyst or the people who've got the best from me, if I'm doing the show with you later, I want to, I like to be able to work in my own way. I don't necessarily like to, to be questioned too much. Um, and I just like people who, who kind of don't say, you know, just be free in your mind and just go and express and do, do what you do because I believe in you. And that's, I think that um, a lot of managers often get the best from their players in that way. But Wenger had a, sp a special way, unique way of dealing, dealing with his players. We look back and we think we all could have won a lot more. We should have won a lot more but let's look at what we did win rather than what we didn't win. Um, and that's something that I think um, I try to hold on to as we look back at our, at our careers. Yeah, you did some remarkable achievements during your time there. And let's not forget the Invincibles season. You call it unbeaten just now, but the whole world knows it as the Invincibles yeah. and what Wenger achieved, of course. And you were at his uh, statue unveiling. Was it last week? Just, yeah, did last week, a couple of, couple of weeks ago. Um, it was always nice to see Arsene Wenger as a man full of, full of wisdom now, working for FIFA. Mm. Um, I think that's a great move from their point of view. Why not? Um, a great to see now that is a move back towards Arsenal. I think really the only thing Arsene Wenger was sort of guilty of was, was maybe 
just staying a little bit too long, but he was in love with the football club and he just didn't really find that perfect exit. And I think it would have been nice if he had it done. He could have perhaps, you know, sat somewhere within the club as, um, you know, as, as almost like a parent or grandparent that sits within a family that is there with that wisdom, with, you know, to, to help give a direction. I don't think, um, you know, that they should, those sorts of people should worry really about them having an, um, an overbearing effect at the football club. I know Sir Alex Ferguson now sits, doesn't he, at Manchester United. I don't think he's in the way at all. I think it's great to have these uh, former people, these iconic figures. And I think Wenger would be equally as adept in the boardroom as he was on the, in the dugout. So maybe one day we'll see a move towards Arsene Wenger when he's finished at FIFA doing something, um, something upstairs at Arsenal. Yeah, he's got a lot of ideas in there. Did you see him often in training? Because I haven't seen much of him, but I saw one clip where he's juggling a ball on the beach. But when he did a trick on Zidane in, a, in some sort of charity game, I thought, wow, I did not expect that from, uh, from No, Mr. he probably Benga. still feels he can play. I don't, I, he, he didn't have the most incredible footballing career, but mm. enough to know, um, you know what to do. I think he obviously be remembered for what he did um, as a manager. But, um, yeah, it, I, I think he has to, you know, it's a real shame he didn't win the Champions League. You know, but, you know, we, well, I just said we shouldn't look back at what mm. didn't happen. I came and worked a little bit with the club there in the coaching capacity. That was, a, you know, an incredible night. I and mean, we just, you look at on relieving the club as well. So, I think it was very tricky for Wenger because of the, the stadium that was going on in the background. And having to juggle all of the finances, you know, of course he lost Anelka and Overmars and Manu Petit, and he and he was then trying to then build another team, and it was became very difficult financially. Um, it's interesting now the club's spending two hundred million pounds in in one summer. I think Arsene Wenger would have been you know, delighted to have been able to spend that. And having spent a lot last summer as well. Yeah, but that's forget. what we want as an Arsenal fan now. That's what we yeah. we want to see. Um, what did you make of an influx of? lots of Europeans and South American footballers coming to England because when you started in the 80s, there weren't many at all. Even when the Premier League started in 1992, where some people view football as officially starting in the world, all stats start in 92 till now, do you think there were only around 90 or so foreign players? I mean, the most famous one would have to be Eric Cantona, but now, now it's a different story entirely. Yeah. What was it like for you seeing them come in? And again, this is before the days of YouTube and all of that. Yeah, I embraced that. I, I, I wasn't uh, an English player. In fact, it actually made it... I remember thinking there were so few English players around, it, was, it, it kind of uh, was easier to get into the England squad. And I'm not saying that was the reason I got in, but I, it was, I kind of got lost to the international fold in a period uh, until Glenn Hoddle come and kind of rescued me and brought me back. I didn't play in the venerable years. I didn't. I played with Graham Taylor. You played age. in Euros in '92, and you went to the World Cup '98, didn't you? And that's right. But there's obviously a gap in in between. Um, but somehow, it, it was becoming easier because there was such. If you were kind of like uh, still a managing to survive with all the foreign influx of players, and still managing, that was putting you on a, a higher level because there were fewer of you as English players. Um, and I then got back into the um, to the England fold. Perhaps in '98 World Cup, looking back, I should have played. I was probably at my peak then, um, and Glenn Hoddle uh, chose not to use me. Um, has Rince since written in his book saying that I was going to play in a, in the next game, mm. <laughs> which was uh, his ironic story. 
in a marking job. I think that's what he had in mind. I mean, he had, um, Glenn had a clear plan of how the competition was going to evolve. Of course, David Beckham then getting sent off uh, didn't help against Argentina, Argentina. And then we went out on penalties. So we never know. I went to, to, I went to the World Cup again and then sat on the bench with Sven Goran Eriksson. So the World Cup proved difficult, although the Euros are played in the competitions I went to, I played in every single game. So um, England was a, a tricky one. I, got, I didn't get in until I was sort of 26 years of age. And I think that was because of all the moving from Arsenal to Everton to Villa. Um, if you, I think you need to be stable uh, as a young man growing up. And I think maybe internationally it was deemed that what's happening, he's all over the place a little bit. I didn't probably find the form I needed as well, of course, to go with it. But I was still playing for England at, at 34 years of age, nearly 35, uh, at the back end of my career. So, you know, I'm not sure what happened mm. in between. You said that Glenn wanted to play in the next game to do... I mean, I remember you as being one of the best markers in the game. But who were you going to mark? I think Did it was Mark Overmars. <laughs> so um, maybe it's just as well that didn't happen. Yeah. <laughs> Funny story, you're about to meet someone who I, I'm sure you know, you've done a lot of work with him via Zoom, Gary Stevens. Um, yeah. He'll tell you the story of uh, 86. There was an idea that he was going to man-mark Maradona, which could have broken him or made him a hero. You never know. What if sliding doors and all of that? Because he did a, a marking job on your hero, Kevin Keegan, when he was uh, at club level and did a good job. Yeah. I mean, it was something that Graham Taylor was, um, was really big on. And uh, I somehow saw it as... Um, I, I, I was a bit insulted because I wanted to play in a back four. And I felt that that, that was maybe showing a weakness. But, but actually, it wasn't. It was, you know, to be able to go and man-mark somebody. And I was given that task quite a few times, certainly in Europe. I remember playing against Auxerre, against, I think it was Martinez, yeah. somebody that you might not know too well. His career was cut short. And the guy was an uh, incredible player. And I followed him every blade of the grass across to a 1-0 win in, in Auxerre. But the job had to be done. So I didn't mind it. I liked it. Um, but you know, if you're man marking somebody in, in midfield, it's not it's it's not as difficult. But if um, if it's a centre forward that keeps you know yeah you man if you're playing in midfield and marking somebody who's on the fr on the front line, mm -hmm. it doesn't really work. So I think the game now has evolved, and you don't really see it too much these days. Yeah, very rarely. Although I read Pirlo's book, and he's talking about Park Ji Sung marking him out of a game, of course, for Manchester United in Europe. So. Something the occasional I, job, I think. The, it was. the, the yeah. occasional job does occur during the course of a match. What was it like playing in Europe? Different. I mean, you're, you're seeing players that you'd have only seen on TV and occasionally, you know, at a World Cup, whatever it might be. I think actually was was the detail from George Graham. We would watch an opponent maybe a couple of weeks before. We'd sit down after training, and um, yeah, meticulously look at the opposition. It was often. This is where these, the remit came from, maybe me marking somebody, looking at uh, their strengths. And we would uh, know our opponent really well. The manager was really big on that, George. Um, of course, winning that Cup Winners' Cup that first season uh, demonstrated to me his like, strength, his depth, really, in trying to going deep into the games. It was never like that with Arsene Wenger. Arsene Wenger would only watch the opponent maybe just momentarily. Didn't want us to be too, too much in our minds, the opponent. It was about us rather than about the opponent. So, so everything changed with those, those two great managers. But Europe was, um, yeah, we did really, we, we really enjoyed Europe. We enjoyed going abroad, uh, especially the Italian food. I mean, playing, <laughs> playing against Torino. Uh, so the guys, 
we just embraced it. It was like an adventure mm. that we went on and, um, yeah, ended up with a, a huge trophy there. Yeah. Lads on tour. No, I'm, I'm simplifying it. It's not the the early years in the Champions League, I think, were tricky. And I think um, I, I do feel that that 97-98 group really should have been given the chance to play at home. You know, people say, oh, you're just making excuses. But we played at Wembley, and so you were, there was never a home match. And I remember coming out onto the pitch, Batistuca playing for Florentina, looking round, you know, saying, oh, Wembley, you know. Wem and it was like, he wouldn't have been saying that at Highbury. Highbury was like a, a postage stamp compared to, to Wembley. And when we were, I think it was latter years, I think we made it to the final of the UEFA Cup. We went out of the Champions League and we cruised to the final because every time, the home game was just an, an easy win. And I think it had been like that at Wembley. And that team was capable. It only list, missed out to the 99 Manchester United group by a point in the league and that epic semi-final. So it was, it was full of World Cup winners now. You had Manny Petit, Vieira, Anelka there. It was another stage on, but we didn't get a chance to play Champions League games at Highbury. And I think um, it was a real miss when I look back. Yeah, thinking back on Highbury, one of my resounding memories of it was seeing how big Vieira was on the pitch when he was going from box to box, marauding. He looked huge. He looked, and I know he's a big man, but on Highbury's pitch, he looked even bigger. And you, you know, it's an interesting one because we have all these statues and it's like, you know, you, and, and you wonder, they're all kind of worthy because they're all kind of like um, brothers in arms, really. But Patrick Vieira was just immense. And I think like he was a sort of catalyst for the success. And if, without Patrick there, I really don't know what success would have been achieved. Um, I know, you know, for Dennis and for Henri, but he was the one, he provided them with the ball. And he screamed, demanded the ball from me. I, every time I had it, I had to give it to him. So he was the sort of conduit, really. He was on you at all times. For that success. Um, so maybe we'll see, a, we're, we can't have statues of everyone, but maybe we'll see one of, of Patrick Vieira. But maybe because he's a midfield player, I remember his battles with Roy Keane were, were incredible battles. And that's probably put him on the map. But he was a great talent. He was a real driving force for Arsenal. A lot of French people there. Can you speak French? No, but I took <laughs> lessons. I, took, I did take lessons for two or three years quietly to find it, you know, so that I could... I had the suspicion they was, that, that people were talking, so you wanted to know bits and pieces, but it never really stuck in. My, ki my kids ended up being uh, with A-levels in French, so that was the reason for the lessons, and I was trying to tag on to that, but it didn't really work. <laughs> Bonjour, je m'appelle Martin. Yes. That's it. That's all you yeah. need to know, I guess. <laughs> I can't remember my French from long, yeah. long, long ago. If I have a glass of red wine, I can remember a little bit. A little bit here and there. Did you ever find out if they were talking about you? No, they, they, were, they were good lads. Uh, and in the dressing room, the manager said, look, we, everybody has to speak English because we can't, to be a group, hmm. everybody. And incredibly, um, these guys were learning to speak English. I mean, it was embarrassing how, how the English just you know, just don't make any kind of an effort. But these guys were learning to speak. It seemed that Henri came the first week he couldn't speak English. Within two weeks, he could speak perfect English. <laughs> Patrick Vieira pretended he couldn't speak English, which was, which was double clever, mm. and then grabbed somebody around the throat when they were talking about him behind his back. So um, they all came with a fairly good level of English, I believe. Like Pochettino when he was at Southampton, all interviews with a translator, yeah, I think turns that was good. Spurs and uh, he speaks I, feel, I thought Emery should have done it as well. Mm. And, and people say, you know, you shouldn't say that. But I didn't think Emery was coming across that clearly. But, and as a buffer in those first few years, why not? Mm. Bielsa did it forever. I don't know if he eventually 
was able to speak English. But well, for, he if you're not correct, comfortable... He can correct his translator when he wants to. So I yes. think there is an, a knowledge there. It became a thing, probably. Mm. But Pochettino now speaks yeah, very well in press conferences. I do know, and I'm not going to say who, but there's one player who speaks perfect English, doesn't want to do the interviews at the time because he doesn't want to be misquoted in English. Yeah. Well, I can imagine that's, that. That's one reason. Yeah. It's um, under pressure. You probably feel that you can't quite express yourself in this in the same way. It's funny. Arsene Wenger speaks five, six languages. He said you have to. If I'm going to speak German, I have to think like a German. And if I speak English, I have to think like an Englishman. You know, one can only imagine what what that's like to be able mm. to do that. I really wish I could speak a series of languages. And also, the English media won't pick up on something if it's said in a different language, as much. So that you can't make a story out of something if it's in another yeah. language, because it could just be a translation thing. But that's a personal uh, per player's personal choice. So yeah. more power to him in that sense. I only have about 10 minutes left, and I haven't even touched on Manchester United, but how much did you relish the battles? Because back then, I mean, now they're saying we have the big seven, if you include Newcastle. It went from, what, the big two, big four, big three, big seven, whatever it might be. More money's coming into England. But I've got so many memories of Manchester United and Arsenal, like you talked about the FA Cup semi-final, fighting for the title... Really, the season was defined by the matches between your two sides. It was. I mean, it's different now. We've got, I think, six of the ten wealthiest clubs in world football that mm. play in the Premier League. It's, it's incredible. But Manchester United were the team, and they pretty well won, up until the Wenger years, they pretty well won most of the Premier Leagues that were played at that point. So we were trying to, and Arsene Wenger was trying to wrestle away their dominance. So of course, they weren't going to like it. And the games became very physical. Um, we won that double in 97, 98. They won the treble in 99, which was uh, remarkable. Um, of course, Man City have just done the same now. have won four of the last five Premier Leagues. Um, could win a fourth one, actually, um, if they win again now. Yeah. Um, so the game has changed remarkably. But then it was, it was really head-to-head. -head. Arsene Wenger, um, Sir Alex Ferguson... You could tell they didn't really like each other too much. Who's this clever Frenchman coming along? Um, and they, they'd had it all their own way. Um, so it was, it was fantastic to be a part of that uh, Arsenal team and sort of re-emerging and coming back. I'd always known about the history of the club coming through the ranks, uh, but this was very different with this sort of French flavour that we had. So I mean, Manu Petit in that midfield, we didn't we didn't mention him. Again, him and Patrick were kind of in a contest that season to who was the best midfield player. It was remarkable, the quality of those two. And um, we went after Man United. And uh, I think the bookies were paying out at the start of that season, uh, at Christmas of that season, because they were so far in front. And we just started to reel them back and reel them back. Won, the, won at Old Trafford and went on this amazing run. So they were, they were good days, but it shows that anything's possible. Um, and if there's a dominance, you know, uh, we're seeing Man City now, and it looks like that will, as long as Pep wants to be there, that will be the, the way, the status quo. But it'll change. One day it will change. Uh, and when it changes, I'm hoping it's going to be Arsenal again. Those Man United Arsenal head to heads, though, I don't know if they'll ever be quite matched in the same way because both teams were, you know, over a five year, six year period, were basically the, the two best teams in England. Yeah, those battles are really something to look forward to. I've got to ask, speaking of the word battle, the Battle of Old Trafford, 
A lot yeah. has been made up about it, and the images of you and Manisteroy, if they're still brought up even now. What memories do you take from that specific match, an all-time classic in the Premier League? Well, look, we're nearly at 20 years now for this. Uh, we, we, about, when we come to reaching September, I think that's the anniversary. Somebody yeah. mentioned it to me uh, the other day about um, doing something for charity around that event. Um, not to condone my behaviour, but you know the photograph. People want to do something with it. So, yeah, I don't think a week goes by really in those 20 years without somebody mentioning it somewhere. Um, I didn't really realise at the time how big it was, how enormous it was. I remember it being talked about in the House of Commons. Um, really? Yes. I remember people outside the House, fans. Um, I remember trying to put the TV on and it was on every channel. Uh, it was just like uh, incredible really at the time. Uh, people think it was a disgraceful behavior. Um, the, you know, it, it was enormous. And, and then on the pitch, it didn't really seem, of course, that too, that too big a thing. We got on the bus, we went home. Um, and then it seemed to really explode. The, there was a huge backlash in terms of the number of games and suspensions that we took as a team, uh, fines. But it somehow galvanised the group, and, and that penalty miss. I mean, you, the, of course, we went unbeaten. No one knew at the time we were going to go unbeaten. Um, but I was mightily relieved because people were going to blame me for giving a penalty away, which I thought was was harsh. I uh, didn't want that blame from from my colleagues, so we were delighted. We could have said we overreacted, but that was that's how it was. I'll take nothing back. Um, I don't have any regrets when I look back in my career. Uh, there have been a lot of incidents with, with Van Nistelrooy over the years. There have been other fines paid. Mm. There have been other comings together with him, me and him. Uh, I don't think it was anything personal. I think it was just the way that he targeted defenders. Uh, I don't have an issue with, with him now. If I met him now, I'd shake his hand and chat to him. Uh, I shook his hand just a few months later in the semi-final of the FA Cup. So, no. Uh, but, you know, when I see it sitting there now in history, it's just... Uh, it's a, it was a big moment in, in, in our season. Probably the beginning of the end of my career at Arsenal Football Club as well, if I'm being totally honest, because I was suspended for a number of games. I got injured before the suspension could be served. And it was difficult then for me to get back into a team that was never going to lose. Mm. Well, the end of your career, you're getting on a bit in age, but you still played at Leicester and Reading. But Leicester, not too long after, champions of England. Champions of England. <clears throat> well, if you'd have asked me when I went to Leicester, uh, you know, having come from Arsenal, just won the Premier League, was were Leicester going to win it before Arsenal would win it again? And Arsenal still haven't won it, by the way, since mm. then. I'd have said, no, that you're crazy. Because the club didn't look as if it had... It was professional enough, if I'm absolutely honest, behind the scenes. Uh, they just got relegated. Uh, see, of players had left, a lot of players coming in. And so that was a tricky one uh, for me. I was supposed to be working with Mickey Adams as an um, assistant coach. And uh, he, I think he became nervous about me being there. So I never got a chance to coach. And then ultimately Mickey Adams left. Uh, Craig Levine came in, who um, immediately wanted me to, to move on. So I didn't stay there too long. Went to Reading, worked with Steve Koppel, got injured as soon as I got there. And I was delighted to see them go up uh, the following season. Mm. Um, and then ultimately, Reading was the club my son then made his first team debut for uh, quite a few years later. So Reading was, um, yeah, was a club that I had fond memories of. Really good people at the club, and I wasn't, you know, wasn't surprised that they went up uh, under under Steve Koppel, who was a, again very good manager. Um, and perhaps I should have gone there 
instead of going to Leicester, we had the opportunity to go to Reading in that summer with, uh, with Nicky Hammond being there, a former colleague from Arsenal. So, no, it was, um, it, it was a strange finish to my career. Um, but uh, ultimately, when you come out of the big time at Arsenal, uh, that will live long in the memory, that, that last season at Arsenal. Uh, I thought they'd go on, Adam, and conquer Europe mm. and win many more Premier Leagues. So I'm they as had, surprised had and shocked as you are that um, 20 years on, we're still waiting for that trophy to come back to the Emirates. OK, well, it's the start of a new season. That's why you're here. Will Mikel Arteta take his team to the next level? They came so close last year. Time will tell. That's why we, again, love the beautiful game. My time is up. My producer's screaming in my ear, so I'm going to thank you, thank you for the conversation. Cheers. Very enjoyable. Cheers. And, of course, there'll be plenty more League of Legends in the not-too-distant future for everybody out there to enjoy. My name's Adam Carruthers. Till next time.